Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Well, it's great to be with you, T North. It's a joy to be able to join you on your online service today. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 133. Uh, Psalm 133 is right in the middle of your Bible if you want to flip open to that or scroll down to it. It's a short psalm, so don't scroll too far. It is uh, just a few verses, but it is packed with truth and lots of meaty good stuff that we're going to be looking at, particularly on the topic of unity. Unity. Now, you might be wondering, why would we ever need a song on unity? Well, I grew up in a family and there's three siblings. I'm the youngest of the three. And you know how siblings are, you know, uh, kids siblings, you know, at one moment they have your back, the next moment they're pushing you in the back. And unfortunately, as the youngest, I would actually uh, hone my skills to find the most annoying way to provoke all of my siblings, my brother and my sister. I would, you know, try to find the things that annoyed them most just to get under their skin. And sadly, there were times where I got so good at it um, my siblings really just exploded on me, and then I'd run for my life. And that's when furniture would get toppled over, pictures would break, paintings would fall, and sometimes I got away, sometimes I didn't. And there was a large hole in the wall right across from my room uh, that, remembered, that reminded me of a time when my brother actually caught me. It was just the shape of my body, and he uh, found a way to put me into the wall. And that was just really good evidence for me to realize not only was that a really stupid path to keep going on, but the reality of how hard it is to be unified as brothers and sisters in the same family. And that's why we need a song like this. It's just hard to get along with others, let alone in your family. And this Psalm, Psalm 133, talks about that very thing. It addresses about not just how do we get along as siblings, but much broader in the family of faith. How do we get along together when we're coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures and expectations? And how do we seek unity at that time? So praise God for this song. Why don't we dive right in and begin reading it? We're going to read the whole thing. The heading's right at the top. Psalm 133 it begins this way. A song of ascents. Of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forever more. Now, you've probably noticed 
in this short psalm, there's four stanzas and three verses with two metaphors and one main point. That true unity is a beautiful blessing from God. True unity is a beautiful blessing from God. Now, of course, there's all sorts of different kinds of unity that we see in this world, or at least attempts at unity. Uh, there can be um, habit unity. There's, there's kind of a, a habitual unity where you have hobbies and habits where maybe you both like uh, basketball or you both enjoy chess or gardening, uh, those kinds of habits. So they can bring people together. They can be united over a habit. Uh, maybe it's a bit more materialistic. Maybe it's about toys and possessions and belongings that you have. Maybe you have uh, a dog or maybe a car and someone else has something similar to that and that brings you together. Uh, some unity is just biological, that you have the same ancestry. Uh, some unity actually is behavioral or even spiritual. And this is really the main one. The spiritual unity is really one of the deepest uh, unities that you can experience and enjoy with others because it really gets down to a shared set of beliefs, a set of beliefs that will really affect the way you view everything in life. Spiritual unity is what's really being talked about here in Psalm 133. It starts in the roots, but it doesn't stay there. It grows and produces and actually affects and shapes unity, the potential of unity in every other sphere. And so this is what we find here, the kind of unity that's being talked about in Psalm 133. It's a comprehensive unity, a kind of unity that addresses and touches every aspect of the human uh, soul. It starts on the inside, but then works its way out. But it's also an inclusive unity. It's an inclusive unity in that anyone can be a part of it. Anyone can join. doesn't matter your age, your culture, your background, your language, whatever it is. You can now actually be a part of a spiritual unity that's being spoken of here in Psalm 133. And the last is just a satisfying unity. A satisfying unity. It's not just a bunch of people getting on the same page about something they're really not interested in, but they have in common. It's something that they're deeply passionate about and find absolutely satisfying. They're enjoying it. They love it. They delight in what brings them together. The truths by which they are formulating and coming around, they love them. They delight in them. And they're satisfying to their soul. And that's the kind of thing that's being talked about here in Psalm 133. People believing the same things, assembling over the same reasons and heading in the same direction. So why don't we look at Psalm 133 in a little bit more detail. And if you're taking notes, this is the first point, is that the, bless, the blessing of unity is sung by David. The blessing of unity is first sung by David. You'll notice that we read the heading there at the top of this verse. And we actually can learn so much just from the, the heading. Uh, sometimes we skip over them but they're actually there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inherently, infallibly, wonderfully placed there so, uh, so that we can learn. And we learn a few things right there from the heading. The first is that we hear about the author, that this psalm is actually written by a man named David, King David. Uh, David was the second king of Israel. He was a good king, uh, by and large. And he came into uh, as a king just at a time when the nation was pretty much divided. 
mostly because of the previous king, the first king, King Saul. He was a bad king. And the nation had been split and it started infighting. And yet God was now bringing together this kingdom, this kingdom that had honestly, the nation of Israel up until this point with King David had been infamous for its tribal hostility, wars, violence, betrayal against each other. It was terrible. It was incredibly divisive. And yet God was doing something new. He was bringing together the nation of Israel under one king. So we see right from the get-go this song about unity, and it's written by David. David was aware of what God was doing and his plan to unite his people, God's people, under one king. In order to, that's by the, the way by which the blessing that God would pour out on his people under one king. But we also see something else here. Second, we see in this heading, this phrase called Song of Ascents. Song of Ascents. And this was a song that was sung by the people of Israel as they went up to Jerusalem or ascended up to Jerusalem to worship together at the temple. Now, God had chosen also at this time, the time of David, to centralize the worship at Jerusalem rather than having it all spread out throughout the nation of Israel. They were, God had directed David to bring the Ark of the Lord this golden box, this beautiful piece of furniture that was in the very center of the tabernacle, God had directed David to bring it into Jerusalem. This was to symbolize God's throne and his presence in the midst of his people in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem sits on this mount, uh, this Mount Zion, and that's where Jerusalem is built. And even the temple specifically is built on that mount. And so it doesn't really matter where you're coming from in Israel, uh, whether it's the north or south or east or west, you have to go up. You have to ascend. You have to climb up to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple. So that's why they call these these songs of ascent as the worshipers would go up to worship the Lord. Now, they were supposed to do this three times a year. Moses even talked about this back in Deuteronomy 16, 16. He says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. And through David, he chose Jerusalem for these three feasts each year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Now, these feasts were amazing. They were week-long worship conferences full of of food and music and worship and delighting in the Lord, going to the temple, hearing the word. It was amazing. And God actually commanded his people, you have to have a great time in my presence. You have to come and worship me three times every year. What a good God we serve. And so that's what they would do as people would be coming from all sorts of different areas and regions in Israel, making their way up to Jerusalem. They would sing these songs and it would remind them of who God is and what he had done and what he had promised and the way that because of God's saving grace in their life, they had been united to God and were united to each other and that they can set aside those tribal differences and those uh, disunities that may have been holding, they may have been holding onto like a chip on their shoulder. They, they set those aside and were convicted of and were able to confess and repent of them. 
as they went up and prepared their heart for worship. Now, this is what Psalm 133, the headings are just telling us. We're, we're, we haven't even gotten into the song yet. We're just reading the heading, but already we see how God is bringing together the whole nation of Israel, God's people, under one king into one place so that God is able to pour out this blessing of unity on them. So with this in mind, let's look at how this unity is actually described by David. And it begins there in verse 1. He says, Behold, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He says, behold, he's, he's trying to grab our attention. Look, this does not happen. This is so rare. This is so beautiful. Get your eyes locked in on this. See what God is doing. Yes, there's so many other attempts at unity that our world tries to provide, but they're often hollow and shallow and just not of any substance. But this, this is unique. This is set apart. This is different. The unity that God is able to create and sustain is something majestically and uniquely done by his hand. And so this is what David is doing. He's trying to get our attention and he goes on to exclaim how wonderful this unity is. He goes, how good and how pleasant it is, this unity that God can give. There is no calculator to be able to calculate the value of this unity or a scale to weigh its worth. There's no painting that can be painted that would fully portray the beauty and the splendor of this kind of unity that God is talking about here, that David is just trying to articulate. And we only get a taste of this as God's people when we actually begin to enjoy it, when we actually begin to participate in it. We get to uh, experience it and feel it and taste it. Whenever we stop to actually talk and, and share with one another as a church family, listening and learning from one another, hearing each other's stories and testimonies, carrying one another's burdens, helping one another, caring for one another. And as we do this, we begin to taste and experience the mutual love, the mutual care, the mutual protection and security that is found in trusted relationships. And it's a beautiful thing that starts on the inside and begins to work out something that only God can give. This is so beautiful, so good, so pleasant. In fact, David spends the next couple of verses highlighting two metaphors to just try to describe how great this unity is that God can give. The first one, the first metaphor he gives is in verse two. He says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, this is the first metaphor that David uses, and he talks about this guy getting oil on his head. Sounds kind of weird. In fact, it seems more like a prank than a blessing, but it's not just any kind of oil that we're talking about. And it's not just any kind of guy we're talking about. We're talking about Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, the first high priest who ministered at the tabernacle for 40 years as Israel wandered through the wilderness. And the oil that's being spoken of here is not kind of just any oil. It is the precious oil. It has the 
specific, the definitive article there defining, this is something very, very unique. And it's referring to Exodus 30, the sacred anointing oil that was only to be used by, exclusively used by the priests. They were anointed and only them were anointed with this very special oil and the tabernacle in which the priests ministered. So that's where the oil would get used. And it was very special because it was very fragrant. It was a potent perfume. It was oil that was mixed with all kinds of spices and aloes and myrrh and different things like that, so that it was very potent. You could smell it everywhere. And that was the intent, was that the aroma was so beautiful, it would fill the whole tabernacle, the whole area in which the priests ministered. So that's the kind of oil that is being talked about here. Now, oil is very important because oil in the Old Testament is often a picture of the Holy Spirit. And this is no different. This is what's going on here is that it's a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out by God on Aaron the priest to fit him, to get him ready for the role and responsibility that he has now as a high priest. And he needs to be ready, set apart for, and empowered to do his role at the tabernacle, which really was being a part of what God had in mind in creating the unity that God promised. You see, the role that Aaron and all the priests had was very, very special, very unique. They would act as a mediator, someone in between, someone in the middle that would help people who had sinned reconcile and get back in good relationship with God whom they'd sinned against. And they sinned against God, whether they sinned directly against God or against another person. They're all ending up sinning against God. And so they need someone to help them get it right. They need a mediator. And that's really what Aaron and the priest's role was. When someone sinned, they would, they would go to the temple and bring an animal. And what's the animal for? Well, the animal was really to act as a substitute, a sacrifice that would be in their place because the wages of sin is death. And so because sin had been committed, something needed to die. But God in his mercy provides a way for a substitute to be sacrificed and pay the death penalty for that sin rather than the sinner himself. And so this is what Aaron and the priests would do is that they would take that offering and sacrifice it. And in so doing, they would help that person bear fruit in keeping with repentance and show and help that unity be realized. They would reconcile back to God through faith and repentance in him by participating in this, this ritual of substitutionary sacrifice. So that's what, that was a major role that Aaron and the priests had in accomplishing in realizing the unity that God wanted to have with his people. He wanted to live in the midst of his people, but he can't dwell when he's surrounded by sin. And so he needed a way in which to cover their sin, to remove their sin. And that was all done through the sacrificial system. That was at the temple that the priests carried out. And they were prepared to do that by the anointing of oil. So it's a very, very special calling that they had. Now, this oil, you'll see, is not just a little bit of a drip or trickle or dribbling down and kind of stopping at the ears. No, this is, there's so much. It's lavish, it's abundant, it's pouring over their head and down the beard, but it doesn't stop there. It goes from the beard and down the robes. In fact, 
it says here that it goes to the collar, the collar of his robes. That word collar uh, can actually be translated edge. And so it actually gives the idea of the very bottom edge, the hem of the robe that the high priest would wear. So it really is oil being poured over the head, down the beard, down the whole robe to the very toes, from head to toe, being covered in oil. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture, not just of, a, of abundance, of the Holy Spirit being poured out on Aaron in order for him to do his role in the tabernacle, but also a picture of unity, of unity itself, because Aaron, his, the head represented the priesthood, but the body represented the people, the people. See, when Aaron served as priest, he had a robe on, but on the robe, he also had a nephod and a breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 stones on it. Each stone represented a tribe in Israel. In fact, every stone would have one of the tribe's names inscribed on it. And so that was on the breastplate that Aaron would wear and wear it into the presence of God as a remembrance so that God would remember the covenant that he had made, the promises he had made to the nation of Israel. And so this is a part of his, his role as a mediator. Aaron's constantly bringing the people before God in prayer and through sacrifice. Now, when you get this picture of oil being poured over Aaron's head, down the beard and down his robe, it's covering every name and every tribe of the people of God, all the way to the toes. And it's a wonderful picture of the unity of God in which the Holy Spirit unifies the people of God. Every member from every tribe is unified through Aaron's mediation to God. This is a work of the Spirit. That's what the oil is representing, this wonderful, beautiful unity that God can do. So that's really the first metaphor that David uses. It's really quite a powerful metaphor. And the second is similar. David uses another metaphor to serenade us about the goodness and pleasantness of God's unity in the next verse, verse 3. He says it like this. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, we, we need some help geographically here. Two mountains just got thrown out, so we need to figure out where those are. So Mount Hermon is in the very, very north of Israel. It's in the furthest northern point of Israel geographically. And it's the tallest mountain in Israel. It's almost 10,000 feet high. And it's famous for its heavy dew, its lush greenery slopes. It's because Mount Hermon had a lot of rainfall and would often produce all this dew that would settle on the surrounding slopes and countryside and make it so lush and green and vibrant, full of life. The other mount that's described here, the mountains of Zion or Mount Zion, is very different. Again, we've talked about how Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. That's more in the south part of Israel. And the temple in Jerusalem is built right on the mount uh, of Mount Zion. Now the climate there is very, very different. It's arid, it's dry, uh, not a lot of rainfall, particularly in the dry season. And so what's being talked about here? Well, God has chosen this place, which really is quite arid, but he's promising to pour out his blessing 
on this place and the people who come and gather to worship him in that place so that they would experience the blessing of unity. This is the picture. Just as dew settles on Mount Hermon to make its slopes lush and green and full of life, so God in this arid place is going to pour out his spirit, his blessing on his people who have gathered to Mount Zion to worship him so that they can be refreshed spiritually, so that they can be reminded of their unity with God and each other, and in so doing, be full of life, be refreshed, be spiritually revived. This is the picture that God is giving. Now, you've probably noticed that in verse 2 and verse 3, there's this constant repetition of running down, running down, or falling down. And it's actually the same word being repeated three different times. And it's a good reminder for us to remember that unity, true unity, is a gift from God that comes down from God. It's not something we manufacture and then lift up. It's something God graciously gives to us from heaven and comes down to us. This is what James 1.17 reminds us of. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. John 3.27 says, John the Baptist mentions this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So unity is like oil that's, that's pouring down over Aaron and covering all of God's people. Unity is like heavy dew that pours over Mount Zion and all of God's people who had gathered there for their revival and life-giving um, rejuvenation. And true unity is a gift that comes from God himself. So it's pretty surprising then how the psalm ends. It actually says that not only is this unity a gift from God, but then he rewards those when he rewards those who actually live in that unity. That's what he says there in the last verse, verse four, sorry, verse three, at the end of verse three, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing Life forevermore. This is the reward of unity, the blessing of life forevermore, life eternal, life everlasting, life ever flourishing and never withering, life full of peace and joy and harmony and never divisiveness. This is the kind of life that God promises to give, to promises to perpetuate for those who live in unity. This is the promise that God commands there. You'll notice it says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. There is meaning there the place where unity has been accomplished, where unity is actually being lived out. That's the place right there where God promises to pour out this reward, this blessing of eternal life to those who live in unity. Right there, which is the place where Aaron was to serve faithfully and where people were to gather faithfully to worship God so that there could be unity between God and his people and between the people and people. The problem is, is that the there didn't get fully realized. The, 
the place and the purposes and the people that were involved didn't actually carry out their calling. The very people that this psalm is speaking about, David and Aaron and the people of Israel, didn't fully and wholeheartedly follow God. And so the unity all broke apart. We see this, I mean, we see this in our own life. I mean, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're no better. But we see very specifically in the lives of these people, specifically of how they fail to keep unity. We look even at Aaron. Aaron and all of his descendants, all the priests of Israel sinned. They themselves, they weren't just trying to mediate between God and sinners while at the same time staying neutral or righteous. No, they had their own junk they needed to deal with. They had their own sin that they needed to address. And this is what Hebrews 9 verse 7 says. The high priest into the holy of holies, the high priest goes, and he but once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Aaron had to bring a sacrifice himself. The the priest had to lean on substitutionary sacrifice for his own sins before he could help people reconcile to God regarding their own sins. And Aaron sinned, all the priests had sinned, but it gets worse than that. They actually began to use the sacrificial system for their own profit, for their own benefit, and then committed all sorts of idolatry, which is running after all sorts of different idols, rather than staying faithful and true to the one true and living God. And so the whole priesthood fell apart. But they weren't the only ones who sinned. The kings did too. In fact, we see throughout the course of Israel's history, the kings using their position of authority for abuse and for unrighteousness, committing wicked acts, giving into bribery and injustice. And even David himself, the very person who wrote this psalm, even from his own rooftop in Mount Moriah, saw and then committed adultery with Bathsheba and then calculated the betraying murder of his own friend, Uriah. So David himself abandons the purpose of the the song that he himself wrote. And so God gave a sobering promise to David that the sword and strife and division would not leave his family, but it would actually run through his family, and then run through the nation. His son dies. Another one rebels. There's horrendous sexual immorality. There is rebellion within the country. There's civil war. The the nation's split. There's war between them. And eventually, kings, other nations come and conquer Israel. They destroy the temple, and they are exiled. And now the people of God are separated from God and separated from one another. It's a complete opposite picture of what Psalm 133 is describing. It's such a sad situation. And no doubt they were asking the same question we're asking today is, is that mean the hope of unity is gone? I mean, is this the whole idea of the blessing of the unity that God provides, is it lost forever? Is the eternal life that is promised as a reward with that unity, is that also lost forever? 
Thankfully, Isaiah 59 speaks to that very question. In verse 15 and 17, it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, no priest, no mediator, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God saw that there was no king and no priest, no one to uh, reconcile, no one to rescue, no one to lead, no one to intercede, no one standing in the gap, no one uh, vouching for those on on their behalf before God, no one to to stand in the middle as a mediator to reconcile God with his people and the people with other people. And so God himself comes. God himself comes. That's the solution to the problem. And that's the second point here is that the blessing of unity is now fulfilled or satisfied in Jesus. The blessing of unity is satisfied in Jesus God the Son, Jesus Christ, left heaven and came to earth, became a man. And he was called the Messiah, literally the anointed one, the Mashiach. And he fulfills as the Messiah the role of king and priest. He was born as a descendant of David in the line, the royal family line of David. And at his birth, you'll remember that those magi from the east, those three Wise men, those three kings came, and we don't know if it's three or not, but we just know that there was magi that came and they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All gifts that represent and honor Christ as king and as priest. We also see that Jesus is anointed as king and priest, not just with precious oil, but with the greatest of all oil, the very Holy Spirit. In Matthew 6, Matthew 3.16, Jesus, it says, was baptized and immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. John 3.34 says that God gave Jesus the spirit without measure, limitless, lavishly, pouring out the spirit on Jesus Christ to prepare him and empower him for the ministry of unity and reconciliation that he was uniquely called to. So that Jesus himself in Luke 4, 18 can declare the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. The truest and greatest oil the Holy Spirit is poured out on the truest and greatest king and priest, Jesus Christ. And that fulfills Psalm 45, verses 6 to 8, where it says, Your throne, O God, meaning Jesus, your throne, O God, Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, that's the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, that's the Holy Spirit, beyond your companions. Your robes, those priestly robes, are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. You see how this 
passage perfectly describes Jesus as both the perfect priest and the perfect king. He lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life. And that qualifies him as the perfect king that is needed and the perfect priest that is needed. A king and a priest that doesn't need to offer a sacrifice of sins for their own sin, but is able to give himself for the sins of others to accomplish and establish and secure true unity that will never break. And he does this through his own blood. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures an eternal redemption by something so shocking. Jesus Christ, the high priest, comes and gives himself as a lamb. It's like he takes off his robe and becomes the lamb that is to be sacrificed. The sacrificer becomes the sacrificed. The one who is the mediator comes and becomes the means by which redemption is uh, mediated. He's the prince of peace who, through the currency of his own life, purchases our peace with God. This is the, the shocking love of God. So much so that John, in, first, in John 1.29, he can shout out, John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that Lamb. But praise God, he didn't stay dead because John later says in Revelation 5, verse 6, that he saw the lamb standing. He saw the lamb standing, resurrected and risen, full of life, proving that he had paid for sin, proving that he had established salvation, proving that he has secured unity and peace that only God-man could accomplish Jesus Christ. This is why in Hebrews 10, 12, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, there's no more that's needed after him. He sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. There's no more need for sacrificing. There's no more need for another substitute. Jesus alone did it which is why in Colossians 1.20 it says he's made peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. True, indestructible, unbreakable peace and unity is made possible in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There, there is where God has commanded the blessing. There in Jesus is found a better Aaron, a better priest, a better David, a better king a better temple, a better sacrifice that gives better oil and better water to all those who trust in him. There, there in the Son, Jesus Christ, is where God has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. Jesus now lives with indestructible eternal life and is able to share it and give it to all those who trust in him. That's why Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 10, 28 says, I give them, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Finally, Jesus says in John 4, 14, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst, be thirsty again. Forget the dew of Mount Hermon. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And just like the lady at the well is asking, where do I get this water? We're, we're asking the same thing. Where do we get this kind of water? Where do we get in on some of this unity? How can we participate and get in on this blessing of life forevermore? And that's the last point that we'll look at today is that the blessing of unity is shared with his church. The blessing of unity is shared with Christ's church. You see, we can't, we can't receive the blessing of everlasting life outside of the blessed one, Jesus. But if you trust in Jesus, then he promises to share everything of his with you. He just shares everything with his people, including eternal life. We can't drink from the waters of salvation unless we come to the well of salvation. We can't receive life forevermore until we come to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And unless we are fully trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as our King and as our priest, the one who accomplished forgiveness for all of our sins, unless we come to him and surrender our life to him, then what is said in Ephesians 2.12 really describes us as being separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it's like to be without Christ, having not trusted in him, not tasted of any of his benefits of salvation. But if if we go to Jesus and trust in him as our Savior and Lord, as our King and Priest, the one who has accomplished salvation for us, if we are trusting in him, then he promises he unites us with him forever by faith. And we, what is said of Ephesians 2, verse 13 and 16, it will be true of us, which says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. It's not so, peace isn't just something Jesus gives as a happy meal. He is the peace. He unites you to himself so that you get him, this infinite personification of peace. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Remember, God has, was bringing his people under one king in one place through one priesthood to pour out his blessing. Now all of that finds itself in Jesus. And so making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross in Christ every person from every tribe and nation and language and culture is able to come, 
come and be united to Jesus and experience through Christ being united to God and experience the peace of God that comes through the gospel. And not only are we united to God through Christ, but we're actually united to each other now in Christ. You can't just trust in Jesus and, not, and get attached to him by faith and not get attached to the other people who are also attached to Jesus by faith. It's one and the same. So when we come to Christ, we actually get united to each other. This is the power of the gospel. And being united to one another now because of our faith union with Jesus, Jesus now calls us as his people, as his siblings, as those who have been adopted, adopted into his family, as adopted brothers and sisters. He says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The unity that the spirit has created through the work of Christ in the people of God. Be eager to maintain it, to foster it, to cultivate it, to grow it. And the gospel enables us to do this through the word, by the Spirit, that we, as we remember the gospel, how Jesus has loved us, we're now able to show that same love to others. In the way that Jesus has been patient with us, we're now able to be patient with others. In the same way that he has forgiven us, we also are to forgive others. And in so doing, the church grows and matures and maintains that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and is able to taste and enjoy and experience the full beauty and splendor of what God intended for the blessing of unity among his people. And so as we close, I just want us to take some time to prayerfully ask the Lord how we personally can seek to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace through living out all the different one another's of scripture. What are those? One another's are just all those passages in the Bible where it talks about how we are to do something to one another, love one another, forgive one another, care for one another. And when you put all those one another's together, it fosters, it cultivates unity. And so I'm just going to read through several of those one another passages. And just as I'm reading and as we read this together, just prayerfully ask the Lord, Lord, what's, what's the one that you really want me to do? What's the one that you're calling me to take a step in today? The first one is from the lips of Jesus. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Be at peace with one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just want us to encourage you. I want to encourage you to take some time to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, which one of these are you calling me to do to help maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? It might be a small step. It might be a really big step that God's asking you to do. Something that maybe you've been holding on for years. Maybe something that just happened this afternoon or yesterday. This is an opportunity to really trust the Lord and take that step of faith. We've seen how already in Psalm 133 that Jesus has come to fulfill what David started to sing. That Jesus is the better David and king, the better Aaron and priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better temple. He's the better mount on which the blessing of God flows and he gives better oil and water that leads to eternal life. So let's keep going to Jesus again and again, as long as it's called today. Keep coming to him, believing the gospel, delighting in the gospel, drinking it like drinking water from a living fountain. And in so doing, let it flow not only in you, but out of you into the lives of others as we seek to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by loving one another. Let's pray. Father, we we do love you. We are amazed at the cost that unity required and that you paid that price in full. It is finished. There isn't any other outstanding balance. You grabbed the whole tab and paid it. And so now you have secured true, unbreakable unity. We bless you for that. And we thank you, God, so much for bringing us into that unity and adopting us into your family so that we might be united to you and to God and to all of God's people. What an amazing blessing and stewardship and responsibility. God, would you help us as we seek to love one another in the way that you have loved us? Help us, oh God, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for the glory and honor of your name and for our own joy as we taste and see of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.